The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. We continue this morning in our circle back to Luke, chapter 2, if you haven't been with us. In recent months, we've been preaching through and teaching through and studying through the Gospel of Luke, and we've made it all the way to chapter 7, but we skipped chapter 2 earlier in the year, knowing that Christmas would arrive and we would want to come back and take a look at this text during this time of the year. So we continue that this morning. We began last week looking at the first part of chapter 2. We'll begin this morning in verses 8 through 14 of Luke chapter 2. Luke records for us this. He says, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a, with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. As we saw last week, the birth of of Christ took place in in utter obscurity. It took place in, in, in a time and in a place and in a situation where it went nearly completely unnoticed. The Savior of the entire world was born, and apart from his parents, Mary and Joseph, and a couple of select other folks that had been sort of looped in, nobody knew. Nobody knew. The world was continuing to roll on like it rolled on on any other day. The people in Bethlehem were, to to them, they just continued about their normal life. To them, if they were even aware that a baby was born, it was just another peasant baby born, nothing to see here, nothing unusual about that. The political officials in Rome were going about their normal political business. No idea whatsoever that the king of kings has just been born right underneath their nose. The religious leaders in Jerusalem were were completely clueless that the long-awaited Messiah, the one Israel had been longing for, for generation after generation after generation, had arrived. And they had no idea. God had not made such things known to them. But when God does choose to announce the birth, he chooses the most unlikely of people. We'll see that this morning. Today, when, when a baby's born, parents have all sorts of creative ways to announce the birth. Have you noticed that? It, it, parents have all sorts of fun ways to announce that a baby is on the way, or that a baby is coming, or that a baby has now arrived. 
Typically, couples sort of gradually let that information out to people in order of importance. Isn't that fair to say? Normally, the couple finds out first. And uh, at some point, they, they, they loop in the most important people, usually their parents, right? Because God forbid the word get out and parents find out some other sort of way. Parents and family get the word, and then eventually they sort of put the word out to their closest of friends, and then you know, they sort of broaden the scope until eventually it hits social media, right? That's where all the information goes out these days to the world. And if you look at social media, there's ample video evidence of all sorts of creative birth announcements. And I love them all. It's fun to see the pictures of the little tiny shoes, right, with the other big shoes. Or the, the pictures of the, the ultrasound that, you know, with the, the family. And you're like, oh, they're going to have a baby. That's great. Some of the best are the gender reveal ones, right? The balloons that pop and are pink or they're, or they're blue. Or the cake that you cut into that you find out whether it's going to be a boy or a girl except for the brave souls who don't find out. They just wait and see what the Lord gives them. We've got some of those in our midst right this moment. The adventuresome types. If you don't see any of those, you see those beautiful hospital pictures, right, of, of mom in the hospital bed holding that precious little newborn, and you see that new life that is, that is just, that is just sprung to life, really, breathing the fresh air, and a tired mom with great joy on her face announcing to the world that little Billy or little Susie has been born. There are all sorts of ways that we announce births in our culture. But when the Father in heaven announces the birth of Jesus, the Savior, he carefully chooses both the method, the timing, and the recipients of this wonderful birth announcement. And of all the people on the earth, he chose the most unlikely group. This part, so, like, like so much of the rest of the Christmas story, is completely upside down from the way the world operates. And it's not going to surprise us that God is going to announce the birth of his son in a wholly unique way, in a way nobody would anticipate, in a way no other person would do it. And that's precisely what we see in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 and following. We're introduced to the recipients of the birth announcement of the Messiah. And we find that they're nothing other than a small group of shepherds who are out watching their sheep in a field on a normal night. We've talked about shepherds a bit over the last years. We've walked through the Gospel of Luke, and we talked about them a lot more when we went through the Gospel of John. But you know, if you've been with us, or if you haven't, you'll know today, that shepherds were not really well thought of in, in the first century. They were, they, they, were, they, were, they were not people that you looked up to. They were, uh, they, were, they were people that were at the bottom of the social ladder. They were, we really couldn't get a whole lot lower than shepherds on the social ladder. Shepherding was a, a career field, that, career field that, that everybody needed but nobody wanted, if you understand what that means. They were the kind of men who, who worked outdoors, who worked with their hands, who, who worked with animals, maybe kind of like ranch hands today or, 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 or day laborers out in a field who worked in the hot sun and who worked through the night and worked with animals. They were, they were not highly educated individuals. In fact, they were some of the least educated people in the entire culture. They lacked basic manners, usually. 
and quite likely used some unsavory language. Maybe if you were in the first century and not the, the century in which we live, you wouldn't say that people cuss like sailors. Maybe you say they cuss like shepherds. It was the type of folks that the shepherds were. They were unsavory characters. They were social outcasts. They, they, were, they were dirty and smelly. They spent all their time outdoors with animals, with sheep. Dirty, smelly, oily sheep. They didn't have a whole lot of human contact in their world. They were poor. Uh, beyond being uneducated, they were poor. They didn't make much money. It was not a high-paying job. It was not considered skilled labor in their day. The job was seen as a fairly easy job. Sometimes even really young people were, were sent out to watch the sheep. Beyond all of that, they were often accused in the culture of being liars and thieves. Something showed up missing, people would immediately suspect it was probably the shepherds who did it. They were so unsavory in their reputation that their testimony wasn't even allowed in court. You, you couldn't call a shepherd to bring testimony. They were seen as so unreliable. I mean, these, these, these are not the people at the top of the social ladder. These are not the, the best of the best in, in the Judean area. Beyond being social outcasts and beyond having a, a, you know, sort of uh, sketchy reputations or shady reputations, they were also religious outcasts. They were religious outcasts because according to Jewish law, these men were unclean. That didn't have just a physical connotation, it had a spiritual connotation as well. And they were unclean because the work that they did didn't allow them to participate in the Jewish religious festivals and the Jewish religious worship, religious worship that took place on any given week. They weren't able to keep all of the Jewish law. They weren't able to do all of the, the ceremonial washings and all of the sacrifices and all of the things that all of the rest of the Israelites did. They couldn't do that because they were all the time out doing what they were doing on this particular night, keeping watch over their flocks in the field with a bunch of sheep. It was what the job required. It wasn't exactly a nine-to-five job. They worked all the time. And so because they didn't participate like everyone else did, because they didn't keep all the minutia of the law, they were seen as religious outcasts. They were seen as unclean. They were seen as outside of the religious worship of the nation of Israel. When you think of this, this is who God's chosen. These are the people that God chooses to announce the birth of the Messiah. Social outcasts, religious outcasts, unsavory people, uneducated people, poor people with a bad reputation. It's really remarkable. But God's choice of these men was in perfect keeping with his whole plan. In fact, when you look at the story, God is consistent throughout. Where does he choose for this to take place? He chooses Bethlehem, not Jerusalem, not Rome, a little village on the outskirts of nowhere, not an important place. When he chooses the, the, the nation that he's going to bring forth the Messiah from, he doesn't choose Rome, he doesn't choose anybody, any nation that's really globally significant. He chooses Israel, a relatively small people. When he chooses parents for the birth of Messiah, Mary and Joseph, he doesn't choose the wealthy, he doesn't choose the popular. He chooses common peasants, 
not royalty, not religious elites, nobodies. So in keeping with his theme, when he chooses to announce the birth of the Messiah, he doesn't choose royalty. He doesn't choose Pharisees. He doesn't choose priests or prophets. He doesn't choose politically important people. He doesn't choose people that society looks up to. He chooses, he chooses shepherds. Shepherds out in their field. God's choice of the shepherds is also in keeping with the, the future ministry of Jesus. The, like this baby who's going to be born is, is going to live and he's going to do ministry. And his ministry is going is to reflect the choice of who God uh, chose to announce his birth to. He's going to be the kind of a, of a guy who's going to get a reputation for, for dining with tax collectors and sinners. He's going to become a, a, a man who gets a reputation for, for touching lepers are filthy. He's going to be the kind of a person who's going to walk into a scene and rescue a woman who's caught literally in the act of adultery and stop her execution. He's going to be a man whose whole life in ministry shows us a special heart for the outcast and for the lowly and for the rejected and for the marginalized. And we see a tip about that here in who God chooses to announce his birth. Just that kind of person. Just that kind of people. Just that kind of a crowd. Now Luke tells us that these were shepherds. They were out in their field. He doesn't give us their names. They're, they're nameless shepherds, which again just underscores their, the whole idea that they're just lowly, common shepherds. God knew their names. God knew their locations. And he knew exactly where to find them. And he sends them a personal invitation to the most remarkable event in human history. These nobodies, these outcasts, they're chosen by God to be the very first to know about the Messiah's birth. The very first to see him and to worship him and to celebrate his arrival. Nobodies. In fact, I think it's fair to say, had God not chosen these men for this announcement, they would have never known about the birth of Jesus. They would have gone about their normal shepherd lives and would most likely never have known about the Messiah. But God did choose them. He chose them. And because he chose them, their life would never be the same. shepherds out in the field watching their flock by night. Luke tells us that a messenger shows up to have a conversation with these men and make the announcement. He says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Luke's, Luke's, Luke's statement about this is so brief and it's so understated that it's almost easy to miss the entirety of the drama that must have been associated with this event. He just gives it to us sort of in verse 9 as a sort of matter-of-fact sort of a thing here. Like, you know, the angel of the Lord appeared to them, the glory shone around them, and they were filled with fear. Every one of those phrases is loaded with drama, if you can imagine the scene with me. It's just a normal night out in the field with the sheep on a Judean hillside. Shepherds doing what shepherds do darkness has fallen 
for the evening. The stars are shining in the sky. The sheep have, have settled in for the night and, and begun to sleep. And the shepherds have settled in for the night doing what shepherds always do. They're, they're taking turns, uh, being on watch, making sure that the sheep are safe throughout the night. Maybe they're sitting around a fire and laughing and, and joking a little bit before they doze off to sleep. Perhaps they were playing instruments, singing songs. Shepherds tended to do that. Shepherding was a lonely job. You had a lot of time on your hands. So they often played instruments. Whatever they were doing, it was what they always did. And all of a sudden, in the midst of what they were normally doing on a normal night, it was like, boom, out of nowhere. The light is ablaze with fire. And an, and an individual appears that's unlike anyone that they have ever seen in their entire lives. Can you imagine the shock? Can you imagine the moment? The sky is ablaze with a blinding light and a living being who is unlike anything or anyone that they've ever seen is appearing before them and the glory of the Lord shines around them. They must have thought immediately, this is it, we're done. We're done. We're dead men. We're told an angel of the Lord was the individual who showed up. The Greek word, Angelos simply means messenger. Angels are, are messengers. That's what they are. They're messengers who carry out the Lord's bidding. They, they're, they're seen in the Bible doing a lot of different things, delivering messages from God. They're seen ministering to Jesus in the wilderness. They're seen assisting Peter as he escapes from prison. They're seen rolling back the stone of the tomb after the resurrection so the disciples can see in. Angels are seen all over the place doing lots of different things. And most recently in Luke's gospel, they're seen, one is seen striking Zechariah mute because of his unbelief in the moment. But in this case, this angel has come to deliver a message. And if you'll notice, the, the whole birth narrative of the birth of, of, of Christ, angels are, 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 are active throughout. We've already seen this. We saw that the angel Gabriel visited Zechariah earlier in Luke's gospel. The angel uh, Gabriel also visited Mary, we're told. Joseph saw an angel in a dream that delivered a message to him. We don't know if this angel that shows up for the shepherds is Gabriel, the same one who showed up for Zechariah and Mary, or if it's a different angel. What we do know is it is an angel, and there was no mistaking what he was, and there was no mistaking from where he came. While angels we can see in the Bible can't appear as normal men, this one did not appear as a normal man because we're told his appearance was marked by the glory of the Lord. Luke says the glory of the Lord shone around them. The glory of the Lord is a phrase that we find throughout the, the text of Scripture. It simply, it simply means the presence of God revealed in light. If you think in terms of the fact that God is, is not embodied, he is not confined to a body, he's a spirit, and the Bible says that when he shows himself to men, he often is, it's often referred to as the glory of the Lord, and it's often described as brilliant, blazing light. We see it 
throughout the Old Testament, Moses encountered the glory of the Lord on a couple of occasions in Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 24, we read this. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people. Devouring fire. You may recall Moses had asked the Lord, show me your glory. Do you remember that? And what does God say to him? He says to him, Moses, I'll let my glory pass by you and I'll show you just the back edge of it because if I revealed the fullness of my glory to you, you'd be dead. You'd be killed. And that's precisely what he gives to Moses, a glimpse of the backside of his glory. If you flipped over a few pages in the Old Testament to 1 Kings chapter 8, you'd see when Solomon's temple was dedicated in the Old Testament, it was completed and dedicated. We find this in verses 10 through 11. When the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. The symbolic presence of the Lord had filled the temple, symbolically showing the people that this was God's place and God's presence was here in this place, that they now had a place where they could go and meet with God and worship God. He was present in that place. His glory was there. But if you continued flipping in your Old Testament to Ezekiel's day, the prophet we see by Ezekiel chapter 10 that God's people had turned away from the Lord and had rejected him time and time again. And so in a sad, sad, dramatic description in Ezekiel chapter 10, Ezekiel shows us the glory of the Lord departing from the temple. Just as the glory of the Lord had come upon the temple and symbolically showed people that God was with them and in their midst, by Ezekiel chapter 10, we see the glory of the Lord departing from the temple, symbolically showing Israel that God's presence was no longer with them. And by the end of the Old Testament, that's where we have the glory of the Lord. And it's years and years later on this Judean hillside with this little band of shepherds that the glory of the Lord returns in dramatic fashion. And he returns not to fill a temple or not to fill a tabernacle or any other kind of structure, but it, 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 the glory of the Lord returns in human flesh in the person of Jesus and in a dramatic display before these shepherds. The God who'd pulled away from his people is now returned. He's returned. And in the most understated statement in the whole story, Luke says they were filled with great fear. <laughs> I can only imagine, right? Filled with great fear. I don't know if you notice this detail when you read through this story, but it says the glory of the Lord shone around them. I don't know why, but I kind of always in the past pictured this event taking place. The, the, I mean, the disciples, the, uh, the shepherds there on the hillside. And I pictured sort of the sky lighting up and the angel appearing in the sky and the glory of the Lord up in the sky somewhere. Did anybody else picture it that way in your mind? I don't know why I always had that in my head. But it just dawned on me this week as I was working through this that it says the glory of the Lord shone around them. It wasn't something that was distant in a way in the sky, but literally the glory of the Lord surrounded, it appears, these shepherds. 
This was not distant. It was up close and personal, and the radiance of God's glory was all around them. They were surrounded by the glory of the Lord. Suffice it to say, nothing like this had ever happened to shepherds before. Nobody important stopped in on shepherds to tell them anything. These men had absolutely no context for what was happening to them, and they were absolutely scared to death. Scared to death. And fear is a natural response to, to, for people who see angels. That's why angels, when they appear, almost always say, first thing, don't be afraid. We saw that with Mary. We saw that with Zechariah. Angels are frightening figures. No better or more vivid description of that than in Matthew 28, verses 2 through 4. This is right after the resurrection. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Catch that. An angel of the Lord arrives at the tomb. And when he arrives, it creates an earthquake. And his appearance is so frightening that these hardened warriors, these Roman soldiers, were literally shaking out of fear and passed out from sheer terror. Dropped like rocks out of fear. Listen, I don't know what an angel looks like. But I know when men see them, they're usually terrified. It's fascinating that the angel causes the, the guards to pass out from fear, and then he tells the women who arrive, don't be afraid. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? He wants them afraid. He doesn't want them afraid. Yeah, fear is a natural response for godly people who see the glory of the Lord. Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord. In Ezekiel chapter 1, he says, And when I saw it, I fell on my face. The disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17 saw a glimpse of the glory of the Lord displayed, and it says that they fell on their faces and were terrified. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, John the apostle sees a glimpse of the glory of the Lord, and he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. If that's the response of godly people to the glory of the Lord... Can you imagine the fear of these shepherds? They were under no illusion of godliness. They knew they hadn't been to church in a long time, if you understand the point. The shepherds were under no illusion of merit here. The appearance of the angels and the delivery of this message to them was an absolute act of pure grace from the Lord. Perhaps that's why the Lord chose them. Maybe that's why he chose these men. Maybe that's why he didn't choose religious people. Maybe that's why he didn't choose priests or Pharisees or anybody who might think they deserved the visit. But he chose shepherds, men who knew they didn't deserve a visit from the Lord. It was a display of his grace. Incidentally, anytime God chooses any sinner 
and points them to Jesus, it's always about grace. It's never about merit. No better display of that than here with these shepherds. This angel didn't show up just to make a scene. He showed up to deliver a message. And this message is quite clear, and really every word of it is packed with meaning. We don't have time this morning to unpack it all. Perhaps we'll finish some next week. But he says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. You know those words, fear not, were the best words these shepherds ever heard because they were terrified. Those words were the difference between sheer terror and sheer joy. Don't be afraid. And the reason they shouldn't be afraid, the angel says, is because I come bearing good news. Another good thing to hear. You don't want to be on the receiving end of bad news from an angel. Read the book of Revelation. You want to get a glimpse of what that looks like. The word translated good news here is the word, the Greek word that's translated that simply means the gospel, the good news. The message is good news. And the reason that the angel uses this word is very specific and very clear. It identifies this birth with an Old Testament prophecy, a well-known messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord, Isaiah writes and says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. The angel says, I've come to bring good news to you poor shepherds. I come bearing good news. I'm bringing you the gospel, and I'm bringing it to poor people, just like Isaiah said would happen when the Messiah came. What is the good news? What is this good news? The good news is a Savior's been born. The long-awaited Messiah has come. He's come to seek and to save the lost. He's come to redeem his people. He's come to pay for their sins. He's come to do for men what men could never, ever do for themselves. He's come to save. He's come to save. That's good news. That's the best news. It's good news of great joy. It's a reason to celebrate. The great joy of Christmas is, and incidentally, the foundation of all true, lasting joy is that God has come in human flesh to save his people. Listen, friends, the great joy of Christmas that we celebrate is not decorations and presents. It's not parties and it's not carols. It's not family gatherings and happy children. The great joy of Christmas is a Savior has been born. God has come to save you. He's come to redeem your soul. That is the joy of Christmas. And incidentally, that's the foundation for all true lasting joy. True joy is birthed out of a realization that I'm a sinner who is, who is the enemy of God, yet God has so loved me and by his grace he has sent his only begotten son into the world that by placing my faith and trust in him, I can have eternal life. I can have sins forgiven. I can have an eternity secure. When a man or a woman has that settled in their heart, joy is a part of their life. Regardless of what happens to them, regardless of what happens around them, there's joy. Because the Savior's been born. 
This is great joy for all the people. I won't spend time on it this morning, but the all the people here does not indicate some sort of universal salvation. It refers specifically in this context to Israel. And in just a a few verses down the line, we're going to see that this child hasn't come just to be a savior for Israel, but he's come to be a savior for Jews and Gentiles. Anyone who believed that he's the son of God, anyone who placed their trust in him to save them, anyone who will submit to his lordship and sovereignty over their life, he's come to save them. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor. It doesn't matter if you're educated or uneducated. It doesn't matter where you're from or what your background is. He's come for you. And maybe that's the most remarkable thing that these shepherds heard that day. They said, unto you is born a Savior. Unto you. An angel says it's the shepherds. Phil Riken says this. He says, ordinarily a baby is born to a family. They are the ones who receive the gift of the child's life. In this case, however, the child was for the shepherds and for their salvation. These shepherds were not just spectators for some divine event. They were the recipients of it. God wasn't waking them up in the middle of of a Judean night just so that they could witness something that had nothing to do with them just so they could get a t-shirt or something that says, I was there when. He wasn't letting them know just so they could see something that was happening outside of them. He was letting them know because this Savior who was born was their Savior. He'd come to save them. He'd come to redeem them. He'd come for them. Shepherds. What a revelation that had to be for these men. The Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, Christ the Lord, has showed up. And he hasn't come just for the religious people. He hasn't come just for the church crowd, or just for the festival crowd, or just for the sacrifices crowd. He hasn't come just for people who are Old Testament experts. This Savior's come, and he's been born to save outcasts, nobodies, shepherds. What a revelation that this this Savior who's been born hasn't come just to, to save good and moral people. He hasn't come just for people who had been able to meticulously keep the law. He hasn't come just for people who are praised by society as the good people. He's come as a Savior for dirty, smelly, sinful shepherds, for these ones in particular. These shepherds had been excluded from an awful lot of things in their life. But this supernatural event, it was for them. It was for them. It was personal. Can you imagine their joy? Can you imagine just how astounding it must have been for them to hear from an angel, the Messiah has been born for you? For you? Never in a million years would they have seen that coming. What a wonderful realization. God's come into the world for them. You know, he's come into the world for you, too. You don't have to be religious to be saved. 
In fact, you don't even have to be a moral and good person to be saved. All you have to be is a sinner. Because that's precisely who the Messiah was born to save. Sinners. Just like these shepherds. Unto you is born a Savior, Christ the Lord. He came to save his people from their sins. You know, friends, this morning, the biggest problem that we have in the world around us, despite what you might be inundated with throughout your day, it's not COVID-19. It's not inflation. It's not injustice. It's not global warming. It isn't poverty. It isn't homelessness. It isn't anything like that. Those are all human problems that, that rage in this life, and they're important issues that Christians should be concerned about, but they are absolutely not our biggest problem. In fact, our biggest problem is nothing like any of those things. Our biggest problem, the Bible declares, is sin. A cancer in our soul, and it's terminal. The wages of sin is death. And the Bible declares that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The biggest problem humanity has is sin in the heart. And it infects every single one of us. And that disease separates us from our God. And it destines us for an eternity in hell apart from him. And further, the Bible declares that there's no amount of good works we can do to fix that problem. That there's no amount of church attendance or Bible reading that you can do to overcome the sin in your heart and in your life. The Bible declares our only hope is that God would do for us what we can't do for ourselves, that he would save us. The only hope for you is the same as the only hope for the shepherds. That a Savior would be born. That Christ the Lord would come. That God would step out of heaven and wrap himself in human flesh and would live a perfect life and ultimately give that life up on a cross where he dies in our place taking the death penalty that we deserved because of our sin. That's the worst problem any human being ever had. Sin. And it's precisely why Jesus came. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. The shepherds got that message. It was very personal. And if Christmas is anything, it's personal. God has come to save people. He's come to save. And you and I, just like the shepherds, we're not spectators. We are participants in the story. We're in the story. We're not outside of it watching it happen. 
For most people in our culture, Christmas is something they observe. They see it as something outside of them. It's not particularly personal. They enjoy the music. They enjoy the Christmas shows. They enjoy the church services. They enjoy giving and receiving gifts. They enjoy decorating the trees and decorating their houses. And they enjoy going to parties. But none of that's personal. It's just something they observe. Let me tell you something this morning, friends. If Christmas is just something that you observe and it isn't personal in regards to eternity it's worthless it's no different than President's Day or Labor Day it has no lasting eternal value the story of Christmas is only important and it only has value when it becomes personal to you when you as an individual look in the mirror and you realize just like these shepherds I am a sinner I have rebelled against God and his wrath resides on me and I personally am destined for hell apart from his saving work and until you recognize that need and you see in the Christmas story that Jesus the baby born was born for you he was born to save you and he stands before you with arms open wide saying, believe in me, trust in me, submit your life to me, and I'll save you. Christmas only has value when it becomes personal like that. If you're here this morning and you've just been an outside observer of Christmas all these years, it's time for it to become personal for you. Why won't you this morning confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and be saved? Why would you not? Doesn't matter if you're religious. Doesn't matter if you're moral. Doesn't matter if you're at the top of society's ladder of importance or if you're at the bottom. Doesn't matter what your past is or where you came from or what you did this week. What matters is right this moment. Jesus Christ, the baby born in the manger, Son of God, stands before you with arms open wide. Won't you respond and be saved? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, don't let us go through this Christmas season as outside observers, people who are watching something take place outside of us. But impress upon our hearts what you impressed upon those shepherds on that hillside, that Lord Jesus, that you came for us. That this is personal. This is not something that we're to observe and admire. But you're a savior that's meant to be received into our very heart, into our very life. Lord, you're our only hope. You would say later, you are the way, the truth, and the life that no one comes to the Father except by you. Lord, I pray that this morning, perhaps in this place, there's someone who's always been just observing Christmas from the outside, but this morning, for the first time, they would see you for who you are. They don't feel worthy of you. They don't feel good enough. They don't feel religious enough. 
but that they would see themselves in the shepherds and that they would see in you the same kind of grace extended toward them that you extended toward these men on that hillside in Judea. And that they would be drawn to you. And that they would receive you this moment as their Lord and Savior. Work that Christmas miracle in this place, in this moment. We pray for your glory and for your sake alone. Amen.